the place to subscribe is truthjihad.com. Welcome back. This is the live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio, your source of heretical insights, uh, bricks heaved through the Overton window, and other uh, troublesome information that certain folks, especially those brainwashed by the mainstream, may have a hard time handling. But you can handle it, can't you? Because you're a Truth Jihad Radio listener. Hey, I have faith. All right, well, we're going to get back to the issue of science, not so much the failings of science, but some of the far-out fringes of science or the places where science may have something to say or maybe not about the big cosmic questions. One of my favorite scientists is Josh Middledorf. He's an anti-aging scientist. And no, that doesn't necessarily mean that he was getting old a few years ago, but now he's uh, middle-aged and heading for youth. And pretty soon he'll undergo anti-puberty and go from being a teenager to a child. And then he'll be a baby and leap back into a womb and turn into a gamete and a zygote and an egg and sperm and then be reabsorbed into his parents' bodies. No, that will not happen. At least we don't think it will, unless, of course, Earth crashes into a chronosynclastic infundibulum, in which case all bets are off. In any case, no, he's an anti-aging scientist, meaning that he studies anti-aging supplements and practices and things like that. And so he is remarkably youthful for, uh, for his age. And uh, he's also got all kinds of other interesting ideas. He just published a piece of his substack called Proof We Are Not Living in a Simulation. And that was a great relief to me because I had read a New York Times story several years ago saying that these scientists thought it was like 99.9% plus probable that we were living in a simulation. And they laid out their uh, their reasoning, and it was quite insane. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, let's let's try to figure out whether we're in the matrix or not. Uh, we're definitely in the matrix politically, but maybe not existentially. So, hey, Josh, hi, how are you, how are you on the line? Hey, Kevin. Hey, good to have you, you back. You make now. me think of Wonkavite and Vita Wonk. Do you, oh. do you remember a book by um, um, Boy? I, you th- you're not talking about the Willy Wonka books. Willy Wonka and the, yeah. Yeah, Roald Dahl, right? Yeah. Roald Dahl after the uh, Chocolate Factory, there was a sequel in which yeah. his grandmother wants to get young and they give her too much Wonkavite and she ends up <laughs> back in the womb and oh, they man. have to reverse that with Vita Wonk. Oh, there you go. I, I was thinking more in terms of Philip K. Dick's Counter Clock World, which is <laughs> one of his minor works, but even his minor works... <laughs> Are pretty more fun than most yeah. people's major ones. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> okay. Well, you, hopefully, you are sort of, at least to some extent an anti-aging scientist in that sense as well, even if you're not headed back for the womb. Um, but you know, we were thinking about talking about the anti-aging stuff, and then we realized we've already talked about that in a previous show. So instead, we're going to debunk the people who think that we're living in a simulation. And I thought your article on that was really interesting and, and wonderful, and. None of that was in the the stuff I've read by the people who think that maybe we are in a simulation. So how, how come they haven't noticed the stuff that you noticed? <laughs> that's a that's a hell of a place to start. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe, maybe we should start at the beginning. So start wherever um, you want. How come they haven't noticed? First of all, if you're a computer scientist, um, the idea of simulating. It's it's what we do. I I do a lot of simulations. Uh, it's the most fun thing you can do with a computer. Far more fun than email or Facebook. 
is simulating systems and run them and see what happens and see if it looks like reality. I, I do that for um, biological systems, for ecological systems, for traffic and e- economic systems and physical systems. I've done a lot of simulations. It's a great deal of fun. And I imagine anybody who's caught up in that, um, which is a lot of programmers today, have got to think, well, um, the this is really deep. Why wouldn't any future civilization want to do a whole lot more of this kind of fun stuff? Um, but where I, I can't imagine their mentality, and I, I think you join me with this, what is it like to think there's no difference between my sense of my consciousness and what a computer would feel if I programmed it to have the same reflexes that I had and the same sensations and or the same nerve impulses and interactions. Um, it seems to me that my existence as a real being is something I, I don't doubt. I never have doubted. I can't doubt it. And the idea that um, I'm just a bunch of switches uh, flipping up and down in a computer is a non-starter with me. <laughs> what, what do you think about that? And what do you think about the um, the mentality of somebody who could think, yeah, maybe maybe I'm just a bunch of switch, switches flipping on and off? Yeah, I, th- I think those people must you know have a screw loose upstairs or something. But I guess some of them are very bright people. At least transhumanists are actually dedicated to trying to achieve immortality by downloading themselves into a computer and living forever as software. And, yes. you know, I kind of, I enjoyed that when I read it as science fiction by Rudy Rucker. You know, he's a mathematician in the East Bay. I don't know if he's still around, but his his science fiction novels are kind of fun and pretty goofy. But he kind of took that approach that that we imagined a future full of robots uh, that are just as human as humans. And then they start crusading for robots rights and things like that. Uh, demanding equal treatment, they you know they identify as robots, and that's so why you you can't discriminate against them and this sort of thing. Uh, it's fun stuff in science fiction, but in reality, these people who are you know welcoming a massive transformation of the planet, such that essentially humanity and maybe all biological systems are destroyed, and yet it's better because everything will live on forever in a computer simulation. That strikes me as there's there's something just I, I don't even have to chilling. Yeah, yeah. You don't need to go into heavy duty intellectual calisthenics to figure out that there's something wrong with that. Uh, yeah, I completely agree, and I'm embarrassed that there's overlap between my community, which does the biology biology of life extension, and the transhuman community, which looks to adapt humans. In, in other ways, connecting our brains to computers and um, merging the biological system with uh, mechanical systems, and that that just gives me the creeps. Yeah, it's another example of kind of bad false religion. You know, I was talking in the first hour uh, with uh, let's see, with William Willers and uh, David King about how a lot of the the crazy reaction to the COVID scamdemic involved what seemed like almost a kind of a a hysterical 
religious response, like almost parodying the worst side of conventional religion with extreme fundamentalism, intolerance, uh, deeming people heretics, and you know, running around flashing symbols, sacred symbols like the sacred mask or the sacred vaccine. And if you yeah. blaspheme against them, you get kicked off of social media uh, and digitally burned at the stake. Well, likewise, it seems to me that these people pushing transhumanism are really messianic millenarian madmen and and mad women <laughs> and whatever their pronouns may be these insane people uh i they they're missing religion you know people we're, we're made to worship we're made to have ritual practices and accept sacred symbols that can give us like a ladder step upwards towards getting closer to god or into a higher state of consciousness whatever you want to call it that's our nature and when we live in a culture that denies that it's the return of the repressed. It's going to come back somewhere. And so it comes back with, you know, COVID worship. It comes back with transhumanism. You know, it's, it's very much like, you know, the, the yearning for eternal life and then the uh, religious teachings about how, you know, you can achieve nirvana and Buddhism or you'll go to paradise or hellfire and in, in the monotheistic religions. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we're all at some level wrestling with death and transcendence. And re- traditional religion has a very well worked out, sophisticated kind of symbol system and system of ritual practices designed to work with that. But when that's taken away, as it has been, then people go crazy and they start worshiping COVID and they start turning into transhumanists and imagining they're going to live forever, not in heaven or hell or nirvana but in some kind of computer simulation. <laughs> so anyway, that's, that's my sense is that. Well, know, I, I have a couple of responses to that. One is that, yeah, maybe there's this innate tendency, but there's also really sophisticated manipulation of mass psychology going on and uh, <laughs> exploiting whatever human weaknesses there are and whatever social weaknesses we have to put a, of fraud over on the public and get people to f- defraud each other. You don't have to listen to the radio anymore. In my community, you just have to walk out on the street and um, not, not so much this year, but, but last year I used to walk out on the streets of my neighborhood that used to be friendly and uh, people would cross the street to avoid passing me on the sidewalk. Is um, that because you weren't wearing a mask they knew you were a heretic or was it the not wearing a mask or what was the problem? Well, of course I'm, I wasn't wearing a mask, but I think they do that for everybody. You know, just staying away from other humans was mm-hmm. part of the fear that's been inculcated in people. So um, the second response to the, the ideas you're putting out is religion. Science has become a religion. And that's something I wrote about uh, just the other day. Um, they call it scientism, and it's a belief. Uh, well, first of all, I'm a scientist. I I think like a scientist. I evaluate evidence like a scientist. I'm an advocate for science, but that's different from taking science as a worldview and saying it's the only way to know reality. And that um, there are two parts of scientism. One is to deny all the intuitive and emotional and uh, spiritual ways that we have to perceive reality that are different from the scientific method and also valid. But 
also the science that's frozen into scientism is 19th century science, um, pre-quantum, in which the world is a solid thing, particles floating in in a fixed space. And that's the kind of science that um, that leads to the idea, well, there can't be anything else besides particles floating in space because that's a closed causal system. Um, we've, we've accounted for all the forces there are among particles, and therefore consciousness must not be a thing. Uh, consciousness must be some kind of illusion. And that is another answer to your first question about how people can come to believe that consciousness is generated by computation. Uh, it comes from this scientism, this branch of scientism, which says, as the 19th century uh, scientists thought, that there is only matter in the world, that matter, the forces among particles are really, really account for everything in the world. Um, and I, I believe that's provably false. Uh, it's one of the uh, one of the things that uh, I, I wrote to you about in this preparation for tonight's meeting. So uh, from there, I mean, why don't I open it up to that whole long uh, preface that I that I sent to you? And so which of those topics do you think would be interesting to discuss next? Well, actually, uh, before we leave the issue of not living in a simulation, maybe you could sort of just briefly address the the issue that you raised around the kind of computing power that would be necessary to generate the uh, particles, right, or the, the simulations of the particles. That is, in, you know, the, the people who argue for the simulation are basically using that kind of argument, you know, claiming there would be enough computer power to totally simulate everything in the entire universe, you know, that and that would happen and, you know, who knows, million years in the future, you know, our descendants or the descendants of other intelligent beings in the universe would want to run ancestor simulations. And so they would run these really vast simulations on these unimaginably powerful computers that would be powered by wrapping a kind of a, a bubble around stars or, or the sun here and absorbing all the energy that all the stars put out and putting all that energy to work to run better and better simulations. <laughs> kind of a weird assumption about what uh, highly intelligent evolved beings would be doing. Anyway, so that the argument goes that there's plenty of energy to build big enough computers to easily run simulations that can adequately simulate everything in the entire universe. And since that's the case, and we assume that's what our uh, descendants will be doing, therefore, almost all possible existing uh, worlds would actually be simulations, and so therefore we must be in a simulation. So they're using that kind of probabilistic uh, quantitative argument to, to claim that we're probably in a simulation. And then, you, so you actually respond with uh, a similar or an argument that's similarly based on the uh, amount of computer power that there would be to simulate the entire known universe, and uh, you come up with a very different answer from them. So you should at least briefly summarize that before we go on. Well, yes. The, the essence of that argument is that if you're simulating two things, think classically, if you have two particles or two planets or two atoms, it takes twice as much computing power as 
simulating one. And if you have three, it takes three times as much. And if you have a thousand, it takes a thousand computing power. And, you know, you scale that up to millions and billions and, uh, however many we have in our body, uh, you get a really large number, but maybe one that you could imagine some huge supercomputer of the future, uh, tackling. And my argument is that this leaves out quantum mechanics. Things work out very differently in quantum mechanics. Uh, uh, some of your more sophisticated listeners probably realize that the basic unit, the thing that we talk about in quantum mechanics, is a wave function, which is a, a function on space. If it's large here, it means that the electron has a large probability of existing here, and if it's very small and in a different place, it means you'll never find the electron or very rarely find the electron there. It's a probability function. And that's a good understanding for one electron. And a lot of people imagine, including physicists who should know better, well, then two electrons, you just have two two functions in the same space. And so it takes twice as much computing power. Three, you have three times the computing power because you have three three of these computer func these wave functions and that's not the way quantum mechanics works there's entanglement in quantum mechanics you've probably heard of that word and your listeners have heard of the word but in this case it means something in particular you can't talk about the probability of electron 1 independent of electron 2 and you can't talk about the probability of electron two independent of electron one. Instead, you have to talk about the probability that, well, if electron one is here, then there's a certain probability of electron two is there. If electron one is in a different place, then there's a different probability for electron two. So you end up with a probability for a configuration, a probability that the system is set up in a certain way. And the computing power now increases much, much faster than it takes twice as much. Um, you imagine plotting the, the wave function for one electron in a three-dimensional space, but the configuration of all the possible positions of electron one and all the positions of electron two is in a six-dimensional space. A six-dimensional space, um, a billion times more pixels than a three-dimensional space. Um, imagine that you need a thousand pixels uh, arrayed along the axis to get good resolution, a thousand pixels along the x-axis, a thousand along the y-axis, and a thousand along the z-axis. That means it takes a billion pixels for the um, for the first simulation. And people who are not thinking clearly think, well, so it takes two billion for the simulation of two electrons. Uh-uh, it's not the way quantum mechanics works. Quantum, in quantum mechanics, you, the wave function itself is no longer a function on a three-dimensional space. It's a function on a six-dimensional space. So you need a thousand pixels times a thousand pixels times a thousand times a thousand times a thousand. So that's a billion billion pixels to just do two particles. And of course, it's a billion 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 to do 
um, to do four particles. Uh, and we haven't even gotten close to uh, a water molecule. A single water molecule is 13, uh, 13 particles. Um, the computing power needed to simulate a quantum system goes up exponentially. It just rises really, really fast as you try to simulate larger and larger systems. And to the extent that life is dependent on these quantum effects, I, I believe it is that life is opportunistic enough that it takes advantage of quantum effects. There's a whole science, it's a new science of quantum biology that looks for these things. Um, so it's another exciting field we could talk about another time. But yes, quantum mechanics is essential to life. And I don't think you can simulate a human mind or a human body without taking these quantum effects into account. And to that extent, it becomes enormously more computation intensive. Enormously meaning instead of taking twice as long when you add two particles instead of one, it takes a billion times as long. Um, so, so that's essentially the argument that the amount of computing power that it takes to compute a quantum system the size of the universe is really a, a classical computer that's much, much, much bigger than our universe. Uh, obviously impractical. And then you go to, well, what about quantum computers? Yeah, you can simulate the universe with a quantum computer. Maybe that's the way our, that's the way to think about what our universe is. Maybe it's a quantum computer simulating itself. Uh, to, to simulate our universe with a quantum computer is, takes a quantum computer the size of our universe. Sounds like an infinite regression. Yeah. Because you need another one to simulate that. Well, I suppose some of the people who would uh, try to argue against you might say, you know, we wouldn't need to perfectly simulate every last quanta, but rather, you know, we could stick with the classical effects of the quanta, just like in the, you know, in the classical world, all of these quanta resolve into these kinds of predictable things that Newtonian physics can describe. So we could just do our simulation at the Newtonian level. However, as you say to us, that would suggest that what you would end up with in these simulations wouldn't be remotely as rich as the real thing. It would be sort of like saying, you know, we just ran a perfect simulation of World War II that's exactly the same as World War II. You know, well, what is that? Well, it's, it's this movie. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a war movie. No, it's that, that war movie is just a piece of celluloid, you know. No, it's a perfect simulation. Well, no, it's not. It's not the real war. And, and, you know, likewise, uh, the, you know, the simulation that didn't account for the quantum aspect of things would not be remotely as rich. And as you say, there are biological consequences, apparently, to quantum effects that wouldn't be covered. So anybody who thinks that they're going to be in a simulation that's just as real as the real world is is probably barking up the wrong tree, even you know, for those reasons, as well as the ones we talked about earlier. So, OK. Yeah, yeah I, I think. Yeah. Um, it depends on it depends on that life uses quantum mechanics in ways that are different from just chemistry um quantum mechanics 
is used as a basis for understanding these the properties of chemical elements, but that's a very approximate use of quantum mechanics. You can't you can't calculate the properties of uh, an atom bigger than hydrogen with a computer simulation uh, with um, with an accurate simulation. You can only use various one particle at a time approximation. Essentially, using the approximation that each electron is independent of all the other electrons, and you just have one wave function for each particle. I, I think that may be where part of the illusion comes from. In chemistry, they do that a lot. They say, well, this electron is in this wave function, and the next one is in another wave function. It's each electron had its own wave function. And they do that and forget that that's an approximation to the real thing. And it doesn't produce exact answers. And in fact, it needs to be adjusted to make it agree with the real world. Uh, I mean, we're talking about big, uh, big offsets. Sometimes it's accurate to 10 or 20 percent. Sometimes it's 40 or 50 percent off. And they just adjust the models to agree with the real world. Um, the so yes, it's common practice to simulate quantum mechanics of ten systems with ten independent wave functions for the ten electrons, and yet um, people who understand know that that's an unnecessary approximation. It's just because we can't compute the real thing; it takes too much computational power. So they make the approximation that all these electrons are independent. And perhaps they forget. A lot of people do forget that this is only an approximation. And if you're trying to simulate the real world or any biological system, and which I believe is subtle in the way that quantum mechanics comes into play in the human brain, um, you, you can't leave out those effects. Okay. And then one subject that sometimes comes up in this kind of discussion is Moore's law uh, holds that there's this constant exponential increase in computing power going on based on improving the chip technology. And I, I think I read somewhere that in the last couple of years or something like that, uh, Moore's law has stopped holding. Uh, so maybe you could just mention that, the question of whether computing power can keep exponentially increasing forever or not, because that would be relevant to what kind of simulation you'd be able to run in the future. The way that uh, computing power has gone on increasing by making chips smaller and smaller, each element on the chip smaller and smaller. And yes, the process levels off because as you get too small, you get quantum fluctuations. Uh, if you have a thousand atoms in each, uh, in each transistor, um, there's a chance that you're, that you're, there's enough a chance that there's going to be a fluke in one of those that your computer viable. So maybe 10,000 atoms per, um, per transistor comes to be a, a stopping point where you need a whole new idea for Moore's law. If you want to make faster and smaller computer chips, you can't do it the traditional way. You're, you're going to need a whole new uh, 
platform for computing to do that. So yes, there is a natural place where Moore's law um, has to level off because we get to the point where clearly you can't make a transistor smaller than an atom. And in, in practice, you can't make it smaller than a few thousand atoms. Well, as far as I'm concerned, Moore's law leveling off is a good thing because then I won't feel like I need to buy a new MacBook Pro you know, every every five years. I'll be able to wait eight years. So uh, uh, moving on to another interesting uh, related subject, I think, is is the fine tuning argument. I, uh, I discussed this. I'm trying to remember if I discussed this on the air with Dr. David Ray Griffin. Uh, I think I did. Uh, he published. Uh, a book of arguments for God, but not God, G-A-W-D. He says kind of the classical theistic position is arguing for God, G-A-W-D, who's omnipotent and so on and so forth, uh, omniscient, omnipotent, and so on. And, and uh, he argues in favor of, a, of God, G-O-D, who is, well, the process theologians would say that, you know, this God is kind of making everything the best, that it can be, but working with materials that have built-in limitations. Uh, that's kind of a, a quick and dirty way to describe it. Anyway, so the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God or God or whatever you want to call it uh, is that, as, as you write in this piece that I've taken the liberty of publishing on the radio blog, the universe seems fine-tuned for life, that the fundamental constants in physics seem to have been set exactly right to an extreme degree of precision to create a very, very rich uh, universe that can, for instance, support life as we know it, and that the odds of that happening by chance, of course, would seem uh, incredibly remote. Uh, So maybe you could talk a little bit about your approach to this uh, fine-tuning of the universe to create a a beautiful, rich, incredibly complex, and life-supporting universe. Well, first I want to refer people to Stephen Barr, who is an emeritus professor, I believe, at University of Maryland in theoretical physics. And he is both a very knowledgeable, competent physicist and a practicing Catholic. And he's made this argument, uh, I think, more strongly than I would make it, that the what we call anthropic coincidences imply God. So going back to back to the science now. So Stephen Barr is the name, B-A-R-R. Going back to the science, I think that the paradigm before 1970 or so was that physics has these arbitrary numbers in it. The physical laws happen to be the way they are. Um, every physics equation has constants in it that physics doesn't even try to explain. For example, E equals MC squared. Well, E can be anything. It can be an energy that you measure and you turn it into a certain mass and that tells you what M is. And so E and M are measured properties of the universe, but C squared, C squared is a constant and uh, that's the velocity of light and if you ask a physicist, he would say, well, we don't even try to explain that. The physics, the velocity of light just is what it is. And there are a number of other constants like that, maybe 20 such constants that physicists take for granted. Uh, we're not going to 
try to explain any further than that. And up until 1970 or so, it was an article of faith. People thought, well, physics just happens to be what it is, and life is opportunistic. Whatever the laws of physics happen to be, life will find a way to create a self-reproducing machine using that physics. And once you have a self-reproducing machine, you have the start of a Darwinian process, and Darwin takes you from there to whatever level of complexity we now observe. That certainly was, in my youth, the way people thought about physics. And then there was a, a, a conference paper by Brandon Carter that talked about these anthropic coincidences, and it didn't receive much attention until um, a, a really interesting combination, Carr and Reese. This is... Um, I'm blanking on his first name, uh, C-A-R-R, and um, Reese was at the time one of the most prominent astrophysicists in the world, and Carr was his graduate student, but also a mystic who went on to a dual career in the, um, certainly as a distinguished scholar physics, but also as um, a psychic, uh, a, a, an advocate for psychic research, and president of the British Psychic Society uh, for for a while. So these two guys together put the subject on the map with a paper they wrote in 1979, listing some of these coincidences. You ask, well, if you assume that these constants of nature are arbitrary, you could imagine what would the universe be like if they were a little bit different, if the speed of light were a little different from what it is, or if the mass of an electron were a little different from what it is, or if the strong force, the force that holds nuclei together, or the electric force were a little bit different from what they are. Um, physicists had assumed that that was just an arbitrary, that each of those was just an arbitrary number. And yet, um, when Carr and Reese explored the consequences, they saw that the universe would just be very, very different if some of these parameters were changed by a quite small amount and they ended up with the idea that we live in a, an incredibly small sweet spot um, among all the combinations of these parameters that there could possibly be. Most of them, the vast majority of them, are lead to universes that are very dull. For example, um, there's only one element, hydrogen. It's hard to imagine how you would have living things in a world where there's only one uh, element or you have a lot of elements, but gravity isn't strong enough to create stars and galaxies. So matter just stays spread out through space. And again, life becomes very improbable. It's a very dull universe. Or in others, the Big Bang gets its start, but then it collapses back on itself so fast 
that nothing really has a chance to happen. It collapses in itself maybe in a thousand years instead of billions of years uh, that the universe has been around now, which it seems life on Earth has been evolving for billions billions of years. And we have a sample of one. We imagine that that's how long it takes life to go from uh, the first primitive forms to to humans. So after that, scientists start, had to face this very uncomfortable fact that um, these, con- these fundamental constants seem to be fine-tuned in a way to make our universe an interesting place and a place that's hospitable for life. And most of these guys are confirmed atheists. They don't want to think in terms of um, intelligence or intention built into the universe at any level. And here's how they get around that. They say, well, maybe there are all possible universes, all possible combinations of these different constants. And we know there are a whole lot of them, but they're all, um, all those universes exist, but there's nobody to look at them because they are so dull. They never evolve life. And of course, it's no accident that we live in the universe that we happen to be living in. Uh, so I would say that most physicists today explain these anthropic coincidences, uh, uh, perhaps a bad name for it, but these coincidences in the um, the physical constants that lead to the possibility of life. They explain it by saying, well, um, all possible universes exist. It's a vast, vast number of universes, but we don't need to explain why we live in this particular one. All of those other universes have nobody in them to look at them. So um, that is the explanation that doesn't invoke any kind of consciousness or universal uh, it, it doesn't invoke any anything that smacks of religion it sounds kind of tautological though doesn't it well i would say it's a it's a gross violation of occam's razor occam's razor is you you take the simplest possible explanation and an explanation that requires billions and gazillions of extra universes really has a lot of baggage to carry in that theory, especially when you say that these universes are, um, there's no evidence for them and there's no way that they can ever possibly be detected. They're just different universes from our universe. So it's an article of faith. So to be anti-religious in this matter, you have to really have a lot of faith. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think it's bad science to assume all these extra universes. Uh, so what do you, what do you think if the, um, if you don't accept that? Well, there's Stephen Barr who thinks that this is, um, evidence for a personal God, a God who created the universe. And of course, God created the universe to be a home for man. Um, and man was created in his image, and he readily, freely talks about relationships to the Bible. 
um, not a literal interpretation of the Bible where God created the world in seven days. He's, he's very much a believer in the Big Bang, um, but a general interpretation where there's an omnipotent being who set the world into motion and created the physical laws as they are. And I'm not a Catholic. I'm more of a Taoist. I see the universe as imbued with intelligence that perhaps consciousness is primary and consciousness had a role in creating matter. Uh, I think of a great consciousness that subsumes all of our little consciousnesses rather than us thinking of an omnipotent being. Or maybe consciousness is a property of matter rather than consciousness creating matter. Maybe matter and consciousness are intimately entwined from from the very beginning. Um, so there's there's a way to think about this that has I, I, maybe it's the spiritual but not religious view of the world, which is closer to where where I am. Interesting. Actually, that sounds, parts of that sound close to the, what I would identify as a kind of classical, a certain kind of monotheistic religious position. That is the consciousness. Uh, basically, my understanding of, of Islamic cosmology would be that there's sort of a primordial absolute unity of consciousness that then, um, it's just as neoplatonic, I suppose, as well. It's pretty similar, uh, that, that, uh, somehow there's a, a creation from absolute singularity to uh, multiplicity and that, you know, what we experience is space, time and matter and all of that is way down the, uh, the hierarchy into, you know, extreme multiplicity. And so that, uh, that's not that different from what you were, you know, your hypothesis of a primordial <coughs> consciousness that's essentially dreaming up reality. The consciousness is the the basis of everything, and and also in you know Islamic thought, uh, rather than existence, the way it's expressed in European languages, it's translated as wujud, which just means finding. So existence is what is found. So the the consciousness of the finder is actually kind of a primordial thing. And, and what's found is just in relation to that. There's no sort of independent existence of it as existence, per se. Uh, so, yeah, either, either way, I mean, I think that if you're a theist, you're going to probably say that consciousness is primordial and that space, time, and matter are epiphenomena of consciousness and that God is just the ultimate consciousness. Um, I, I want to mention two people who... Your, our listeners might want to consult if they're interested in this. One is Amit Goswami, who's also a very competent physicist, but uh, a mystic as well. And he's done a lot to try to combine these, these views together. And he says, consciousness is the ground on which all reality is constructed. Um, the other is Bernardo Kastrup. K-A-S-T-R-U-P, who um, is a very articulate spokesman for the radical view that consciousness is all that 
exists in the, in the world. It's sort of the mirror image of these guys who say physical reality is the only reality and consciousness is an illusion. Kastrup says consciousness is the only reality and matter is an illusion concocted by consciousness. I can't do it justice. You no, know, it's great stuff. I've, I read uh, one of his books. Yeah. I was quite impressed. That's uh, that's some pretty serious uh, classical idealism. Yes. He's he's a deep thinker. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 really good stuff. Uh, you know, you actually sent out something about uh, a, a scientist I hadn't heard of before, uh, Monica Galliano, who studies consciousness of plants. And she did a talk on imagination and science. It's only about, what, 20 minutes long, but that's the most mind-blowing 20-minute science talk I ever saw. Uh, and I think that's that's relevant to this, right? She, she uh, what, what a wonderful scientist is Monica Gagliano. And on my webpage that I referred you to, I wrote a poem in tribute to her uh, just a few days ago. Uh, so Monica Gagliano, I'll just give you briefly her story. Um, she started out life as a scientist studying the social ecology of fish. And um, that involved getting to know the fish. And she had this wonderful life underwater where she um, – I'm, I'm starting to think this story is too long. It's too good a story. It's too good a story. I'm going to t tell the story even if it takes a little time. So she's hanging out with these fish every day and they get to know her and she's feeling close to these fish. And that comes to the end of the experiment where her job is to take the fish in the net back to the lab, cut them open and study their brains. And instead of going out there and finding all the fish swimming with her and accepting her, she goes out that day and there isn't a fish in sight. All these fish that she'd come to know as individuals, um, somehow they knew that this was the day that she was not their friend. <laughs> and this, when that happened, it just uh, created a great shift in her consciousness and said, she said, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm not cutting up any fish. That's that's not going to be my career. And she switched to behavioral ecology of plants. What? There is no behavioral ecology of plants. Plants don't sense their environment. They don't talk to each other. There is no behavioral ecology of plants. And she set out to, just inspired by the idea that Maybe these things exist. She has done remarkable, simple, but elegant and very rigorous experiments to show, for example, that plants have memories, to show that plants respond and can, can learn from their past um, experience and respond differently because of their past experience. Now, we think we understand learning in animals as a function of the synapses in our brains. Uh, the standard model is that when you do something enough times, then that synapse becomes stronger and stronger each time that you do it and you come to learn uh, a certain response because you've, you've done it over and over. Well, plants don't have synapses. They don't have nerves. They don't have brains. 
there's nothing in the plant that could even sense the environment as far as we know. And uh, part of her, um, part of her experiments are sensory. She, um, we know that plants can sense light. It's, I guess it's, it's clear that plants are, are, have, must have active, uh, sensory organs to, to sense light. Um, but she's shown that they also sense motion. They sense light breezes, just a little bit of wind. Uh, they sense sound. She's, um, put, um, put plants in environments where there's water flowing, but separated so that the water never touches the plant. And the plant hears the sound and moves it, grows its roots in the direction where it hears the sound. These are just stunning experiments, and they make us rethink what a plant is, whether a plant can have sensations or even consciousness. And certainly we have to think of rethink um, neuroscience as the basis of um, of being a sensory being. Uh, some of what we regard as the ground of grounds for showing that we are sensor, sensitive beings that are aware of our environment, plants can do that too, and yet they don't have ears or eyes or sense organs or even nerves or, or brains. We have no idea how uh, the plants do that. And that's an active area now of um, Monica's research. She's in Western Australia, although she's she's she wrote a book a couple of years ago. And since then, she's quite an Internet presence. She's a, a sought after speaker and just very inspiring. I and mean, she talks about experiences in the Amazon where she goes on these vision quests uh ayahuasca trips with a shaman and the plants talk to her and give her the design for the experiment, which, you know, it sounds really woo until she goes home and puts her scientist hat on. They're like experimenting on her. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Um, So she's getting information on the plants, how to do these experiments, and she goes home and puts her scientist hat on and she turns them into just bulletproof uh, methodologies for demonstrating that the um, that plants have these learning capabilities and sensing capabilities. So I highly recommend Monica Galliano. Yeah, well, the, the video that you sent me uh, gives a, a really good argument for why we should be thinking of plants in the Bernardo Castro sense as consciousness, right? As uh, because she's saying that. They not only, you know, can sense and, and respond, but they also have imagination. As if you know, she ran the Pavlov's dog experiment on a plant, feeding it instead of dog food, feeding it light, and then matching the, the light she was going to feed it with a little breeze so that the plant would uh, respond to the breeze and turn, you know, go, go phototropic towards the light, just like the dogs would salivate in Pavlov's experiment. And yeah, so so in an analogy to the Pavlov experiment where the dogs learn to associate a bell, which is an arbitrary thing, with food, which is something that makes them salivate, she used a breeze to tell the plants what direction the light would be coming from the next day. 
and she taught the plants to grow toward the breeze or away from the breeze. I mean, she could, she's done it in both directions. So to, to prove that the plants are really learning, the plants can learn to grow toward the breeze or away from the breeze. Uh, if she trains them to know that that's the direction that the light is going to be coming from the next day. Mm-hmm. And, and then she, she explains that the way to think about this is not in the kind of classic Pavlovian materialistic sense that you're just conditioning a dog to drool or you're conditioning a plant to, to grow towards this or that direction, but rather to know that the, the dog is conscious, that there's a consciousness that likes food. Uh, you know, a dog has its volition, has its consciousness, and learns with its imagination to associate the bell with the food. Likewise, the plant has an imagination, and it is associating its food, which is light, with the breeze. So there's a consciousness there which is primordial, and what's going on in the in material reality is just an expression of that. And so that, I, I think that's very, you know, it, it's a kind of a tangible uh, acting out or uh, a manifestation of, of what Kastrup is saying about all of existence. Um, maybe she's right. I, um, I don't know whether plants actually have consciousness. Uh, certainly she's moved us in that direction. Um, I, I've, a, a lot of my research is in the direction of showing that whole ecosystems are evolved to work together. And that gives a sense that life is interdependent and it makes me friendly to the idea that plants need to be respected as well as animals and that the idea of monoculture farming, I guess it's got to be on its way out as, as we see that the farms are failing more and more, needing more and more pesticides and more and more fertilizer to keep going. We need to be living in natural ecosystems the way the Native Americans were living in natural ecosystems. There's, there's one more topic that I wanted to squeeze but, but we in. We only have one more minute. So one more minute. Oh, one more minute. Oh, gee. Oh, yeah. Well, the one more minute, I want to refer people to the experiments of Robert John, J-A-H-N, and Brenda Dunn, at Princeton in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and up into 2000-something, when they demonstrated that human intention can have an effect on what quantum mechanics regards as random. And I think this just changes the whole picture. It blows the materialist view of the world out of the water. You have to recognize that mind has a separate existence of its own once you see those experiments and once you take them seriously realizing that mind even in these very arbitrary experiments mind can affect the random number generators and the quantum random but, but, number but, but, generators mind, mind can't stop time as much as we wish it could <laughs> the All right. so I'll just right. well, thank you so much thank you